Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, Corinthians was last night, Chronicles. Okay, 1 Chronicles chapter number 16, wonderful to see you. Thank you so much, OCA students, great to see you. We had a great day today, some great competition. And uh, let me just say a word and mention the CDs tonight. Uh, there's, I think, five of our CDs over there. We have more than that uh, as far as our ministry does there. Uh, these are all CDs produced at Baptist College of Ministry and Falls Baptist Church there, the home of the college. And uh, just to give you a little idea, I mentioned this one of the messages. Uh, many of the groups of the young men and young ladies that are in those, on those CDs have been over to the governor's mansion multiple times to perform there for Governor Scott Walker at his request. Most of the time they have done, um, uh, they have done uh, Christmas concerts. And as I mentioned, I think one of the nights uh, the governor will pull them aside and pray that people will be saved. It's a wonderful thing. And it's unfortunate he's not in the governor's mansion anymore, but that's just the way it is. Uh, but there's some wonderful CDs over there, that uh, full choir. Uh, there are a couple CDs over there, what I would call Get Ready for the Rapture music. Uh, that's the kind of music I like. Pull out the stops, full choir, full orchestra. And uh, that's a couple over there. Then there's some for the more pensive people. There's a cello, solo, cello so, uh, CD. Many of them have the old-time hymns. Some also some new arrangements that are more revival-oriented are on some of those. And you can ask uh, the team members will be down there. And they can certainly help you with um, uh, those if they'd be an interest to you. Uh, there's a Christmas CD. I know we're past that, but uh, it's a wonderful Christmas CD. Some uh, have full choir, orchestra, as well as other groups, smaller groups. And uh, certainly uh, I've got some numbers on there that I know uh, will be encouraging to all. So I just want to mention that since that's it. I'll mention a thing about the table each night. Uh, we also have some information about Baptist College of Ministry, but I'll say more about that either tomorrow or Thursday. Okay, what I'd like to do, we've kind of been on a journey these days together. And what I want us to do is just focus on one thing that we talked about last night. Just one thing. And uh, if you remember, we talked, if uh, you can remember, we talked about high things that exalt themselves against. Do you remember what they exalt themselves against? And the answer is the knowledge of God. What I want to do uh, tonight is just spend the entire time talking about seeking God's face. Seeking God's face. It's the same concept, but from an Old Testament perspective. So we'll go to 1 Chronicles 16, and we'll begin the reading at verse number 10. We'll find our text in verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 16. Glory ye in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice and seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. And here it is, the text. Seek his face. Could you please tell me that last word? Continually. You know, every commandment in the Bible is important. Would you agree with me? In fact, even the Matthew, book of Matthew chapter number 5 says the least commandments, if you'll do and teach them, you'll be great in the kingdom of God. So even the least of the commandments is important to God. I'm not minimizing that at all. But would not you say that, the, that the, some commandments are, are, uh, have a greater significance in the sense that God tells us to do them all the time? How about pray without anybody know? How about rejoice? You see, there are certain commands God says, I want you to do them all the time. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think anything God commands us to do all the time has got to be pretty important, wouldn't you think? Now, here's another one. Seek his face again continually. Now, I have learned this, and I suppose you have too, that if you don't know what it means to seek God's face, pretty good chance you may not do it. Now, let's just be honest. Rejoice evermore. I think we've got a little idea what that means. Pray without ceasing. Okay, we can learn more, but we have a basic idea what that means. But what does it mean to seek God's face? Because I am telling you, God says you need to do it all the time. So what does it mean to seek God's face? I suppose that the, the troublesome part of the verse would be, what does God mean by seeking his face? Now, it's important to understand something that perhaps in modern culture we miss. 
In ancient days, when you saw somebody's face, this may shock you, you were in their presence every single time. Now, we live in a culture that, of course, technology, modern technology has really changed things. I remember back when I was a kid, there was a futuristic cartoon. I don't know why I watched it. It was pretty dumb, but I watched it all the time about a future family. It was called the Jetsons. How many watched it? Okay, these are all the baby boomers. Just raise your hand. Okay, right here. And some of the, even, how do I say this? Some of the moms and dads of the baby boomers watched it too. But anyway, um, but on the Jetsons, I remember as a kid, I wouldn't know if I put it in these words, but you know, kind of the idea, this will never happen. None of this stuff will ever happen in my lifetime. Well, let's imagine we don't fly around in cars yet. We don't have robots for maids yet. But there is one thing in the Jetsons that has come true. Unbelievable. When they made telephone calls, it's going to shock you, you could see the face of the other person. Unbelievable technology. Well, it's here. Do they call it Skype, FaceTime? I don't know. I don't use it. But anyway, uh, you know I'm talking. Missionaries love it. Because they can, uh, they can uh, talk to their parents back at home and see their face and see, you know, how everything's. And the, the parents can see the kids and their grow, grandkids and they're growing, all that kind of stuff. But I will tell you, as much as FaceTime, Skype, all that stuff is kind of neat, it does not replace the actual presence of someone. Like if I'm away from my wife and I were to FaceTime her, I can kiss my phone, but I'm telling you I'd rather kiss my wife. What about you on that day? You know what I'm talking about? I can FaceTime my wife on the computer, but I'm telling you, I'd a whole lot rather hug my wife on that dumb, dumb computer. You see, the actual presence of somebody, there's no replacement for it. When I preach at a week at camp during the summer, sometimes come home, come up that driveway, my three daughters who are now in college, one of them's out, uh, just out, and I'll come up there, they'll come out to greet me and give my wife a hug and a kiss, and my daughters a hug and, and a kiss on the forehead, whatever, you know, and as they come out there, there is no replacement for their actual presence, and everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. So what's God talking about when he says to seek his face? I believe when you see somebody's face, their presence has been, hang on, manifested. So when God, I believe, says, seek my face continually, what he is saying is, I want you to seek my manifest presence. Now, right now, I need to tell you something theologically. In this room right now, God is here. I like what the songwriter said, everywhere that man can be. Do you know the rest of that song? Thou God art present there. Aren't you glad you can't go anywhere where God's not? If you're saved on your way to heaven and are right with God, the presence of God is a really nice, wonderful truth from the Word of God. Now, if you're not right with God, sometimes it brings a little fear, doesn't it? But see, God's everywhere. His, his, his presence, we call it omnipresence, and, and we get that. But, but although God is in this auditorium tonight, there are two kinds of people here. People who know it theologically, and then there's people in this room who know it experientially because he has manifested his presence to you. And you're living in the reality of the very manifest presence of God. Didn't he tell the disciples the night before he went home, to, to, uh, to, went, uh, was crucified on the cross, didn't he tell them, I will manifest myself to you? How does he do that? Well, he does it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, that Holy Spirit regenerated your spirit and he didn't leave. <laughs> He's still there. The Holy Spirit lives in us, the Spirit of Christ. 
So what are we talking about? I, I mentioned this last night, and I started the trek last night, but for those that were not here, I think most were, we'll certainly get you up to speed. You know what we're talking about? We are talking about a spiritual reality. Sometimes I hesitate to use the word experience, and the reason is because there are people who are deceived in their experiences. So I like the word a spiritual reality. <laughs> That's what we're talking about tonight. Now, it's important for us to understand that we live in a culture that is obsessed with the sensory. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? Our culture absolutely finds reality in what you can assimilate through five senses. But I will tell you, everything you can assimilate through five senses, everything around you, one day will be gone. It's all temporal. And only the things that you can assimilate through your spirit, those are eternal. So the sensory is that which our world has gone crazy over. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me to live for something that won't last, but that's what our world does. You can't take it with you anyway. Have you ever noticed there's no U-Hauls behind hearses? Have you ever noticed that? You know, when John D. Rockefeller died, the richest man, they say, in modern history, if you, if you adjust the wealth, that when John D. Rockefeller died, somebody went to his accountant or somebody who know and said, hey, how much did he leave? You know what the accountant answered? All of it. And everything you can assimilate through your five senses, I hate to tell you this, you're leaving it all. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, if you look at eternity, that you would live for just a short segment of time? It's like a, being a Confederate millionaire with the Civil War in 1865. How would you like to have been a millionaire in Confederate dollars in 1865? Because as soon as the Civil War's over, guess what? It's not even worth, it's just worth it to burn. That's it. And that's exactly what everything you see is worth, as far as eternity is concerned. Because the moment you die, it's like Confederate currency. Isn't it kind of strange to live for Confederate currency? What do you think? There's teenagers out here who think, oh, I got 50 years left, and you're going to live for Confederate currency and be a pauper in eternity. You see, the idea is, when we're talking about God's face, we're talking about that which is eternal. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And so the point is this, that our world has gone crazy, crazy over the temporal, the sensory, if we could say. I mean, on a, just a little bit of a light note, I remember when I was a kid, I would go down to the store to buy candy with a nickel. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you bought it with a penny, okay? You go back further than me. Okay, it took a nickel when I was a kid. And I want to tell you, some of that candy I look back at, I'm thinking, that was the most boring candy. Wax lips. Do you guys remember wax lips? You would chew them. You know what it tasted like? This is going to shock you. Wax. There was no taste. Why did we buy them? I don't know. I, don't, I guess it was the buck teeth. I don't know. But you know... Uh, now, you could never, I'm that never fly today. Have you ever eaten some of this candy out here? Some of you older senior citizens don't do it. Those red hots, <laughs> you have smoke coming out of your ear. You know what I'm talking about? You ever eaten some of that Sour Patch candy? I mean, unbelievable what it is. See, our world on the sensory, and how about this? Roller coasters. When I was a kid, we had roller coasters. You know what I'm talking about. They weren't death-defying, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, we used to ride roller coasters. Back when I was a teenager, they built an amusement park north of Chicago called Marriott's Great America, now Six Flags owns it. And man, they put in a new roller coaster. I remember thinking, we got to go on this thing. Un it went upside down four times. Whoa. We thought that was unbelievable. 
so cool. I mean, we'd shake in line, you know, going up there planning our funerals as we went up to the line. You know, you remember back when you were a kid, you'd how dumb you do some of the dumb stuff. Now I think I've ridden my last roller coaster. I don't know about you. I don't like blood on one side of my body. You know what I'm talking about? I kind of like it everywhere. And so uh, I, uh, I remember uh, this, this roller coaster, and we thought it was so cutting edge, so cool. I drive by that amusement park all the time, and I look in there, try to find that roller coaster. It is dwarfed by about five or six roller coasters. I think they've moved it over to the kiddie ride section. You know what I'm talking about? It's just amazing to me. In fact, I, I, I understand from reading uh, or people talking about, about things they've read that they've reached the limit in roller coaster technology. They can get no more dramatic because if they do, people will black out. Well, that'll, that'll be cool. Hey, ride this roller coaster blackout. You know, some people will do it. They really will. Some kids will do it. Why? Because our world is all into the sensory. Now, I don't know. Have you ever walked through Walmart and watched somebody with a screen, one of those screens in the TV department with extreme sports? You know what I'm talking about? I look at that stuff and say, that is such moronic because one slip, you'll have arthritis the rest of your life. All you old people know what I'm talking about. Now we live with all our sports injuries. And I'm thinking, why do people do that? For the thrill. Back when I was a kid, we didn't have, well, I take that back. We did have one guy who was doing extreme sports. His name was Evil Knievel. (laughs) How many remember Evil Knievel? These are the really old people in the room. I mean, old. (laughs) I read an article years ago about Evil Knievel, and he lived in Tampa, Florida. He's obviously gone now, but the thing that really made me sad about that article is the article basically said, when Evil Knievel wakes up in the morning, he lives in pain the entire day. Broken almost every bone in his body. And not only that, the article basically said Eva Knievel did not find what he was looking for in his daring events and stunts. So he turned to alcohol, drugs, sexual sin, the whole mess. And I remember that reading the article, and you basically got the idea, if somebody could get through with the gospel, that guy's probably ready to get saved because he has not found what he's looking for. See, that's the world, isn't it? Trying to find reality in that which you can see. Probably one of the saddest things I've ever seen was uh, somebody said, you've got to watch this little YouTube clip. So I put in what they told me to put in, and boom, there comes up Tom Brady after three Super Bowl victories. And some guy was interviewing him. said, hey, Tom, what does it feel like, man? You've won three Super Bowls. You know, you signed the big contract. I can't remember what the guy said, you know. And how does it feel? And Tom Brady looked at him. And some of you have seen this video. He looked at him with great consternation. And he said to the guy who was questioning him, there's got to be something more. And the guy goes, well, what do you think it is, Tom? Kind of light. But Tom didn't go light on him. He looked at him right back and said, I wish I knew. Do you know, my friend, if you have a million-dollar contract and have won three Super Bowls, and if that cannot satisfy, the rest of us are in huge trouble. Because I'm not seeing any potential quarterbacks out here. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I didn't mean to offend you, but I don't think any of you are going to the Super Bowl. And I don't think any of you, probably in this room, I don't think we could combine our salary and find the money Tom Brady's got. So if Tom Brady's money and fame and acclamation in the sports world does not bring you satisfaction, what hope do we have? Well, we have a lot of hope because he's looking in the wrong place. He's looking in the place of the sensory. He's not looking in the right place. And I guarantee you, after Super Bowl number six, if we could get to Tom Brady, you know what he'd say? There's got to be something more. If three Super Bowls won't do it, I guarantee you six won't do it either. 
All I'm trying to simply say is, what does it mean to seek God's face? I want you to see it is not in the realm of the sensory. It is in the realm of the spiritual. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him, as we talked about last night. Help me out now, in spirit and in truth. So what we are talking about, where we connect with God, where we fellowship with God, where we have a relationship with God is in the realm of the spiritual. And I do believe one of the problems today in American Christianity is we are so distracted with the temporal. There are dear people perhaps in this room that spend literally hours on discretionary technology every day. YouTube videos, teenagers perhaps, video games. We wonder why God seems a million miles away. Three years ago, I, my brother, who happens to be a pastor of the church, we were having a conference, and he had challenged people to spend an hour with God, spend an hour with God every day for 21 days. He called it the 21-day challenge. And here's what he said. I challenge you to get rid of all discretionary technology. In other words, get rid of all technology and all everything that you really don't need for 21 days and replace it with an hour with God. Many people said... That changed their life. You know why? Because they were exchanging temporal and they were taking the eternal. You see, friends, what we're talking about seeking God's face, the idea is, God, I got to have you. God, I got to know the reality of your presence. Lord, I want to fellowship with you. God, I cannot go on without the manifestation of your presence. Do you know God does not play hide and go seek? You know, there's other words, can I put it this way to you, friends? For everybody in this room, if you can live without God, you will. But if you say, preacher, I can't live without God, you don't have to. Isn't that great? Because he is not a respecter of persons. In fact, all throughout the word of God, you know what God says? If you seek me, you will find me. Deuteronomy 4.29, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If you seek from with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Jeremiah 29, verse 13, and you shall seek for me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. All throughout the Bible, there's a seek, find metaphor there. You seek me, you'll find me. So God's promise is, is certain. You've, you seek God, he, he will, he will, he, we, you will find him. You'll know the reality of God. I will pour water on him who is thirsty, Isaiah 44, 3. Isaiah 41, verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. If you are thirsty for God, he says, I will always meet your need. That's why I'm saying if you can live without God, you will. You say, okay, preacher, I want to seek God's face. I really do want to do that. Well, how do I do that? I see it's spiritual. It's not sensory. I, I see that. I, I, I don't want to replace um, a, a relationship with God with high things, but we're all so, so much of a tendency to do that. And we talked about the coping mechanisms and, and all that last night and the things we replace instead of knowing God, instead of running to his presence. I will tell you this, anybody in this room who has any kind of sustained relationship with God will tell you it is the most satisfying time of your life when you have a relationship with God. And he wants it with all of us. So you say, well, preacher, how do I do it? Well, 
we obviously see, I could preach it from the rest of this text, but I think it would help us if we went to John chapter number 7, because certainly John 7, I believe Jesus is talking about the same thing. John 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles, and, and we'll see uh, quickly here in verse number 37. It's the last day of the feast, that uh, great day of the feast. And notice what it says in the passage of Scripture, if you're to John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, as I understand in the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do, the priest would take some kind of vessel, they'd go down to the Pool of Siloam, they would pick up some water, they'd take it up to the temple, and there at the temple they'd have a ceremony, they'd pour out the water, and have a ceremony commemorating God's provision of water in the wilderness. Many scholars believe that Jesus was referring to that because all they were getting out of the ceremony was Jesus' provision of physical water, and Jesus was helping saying, no, 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 it's a picture of a greater truth. That last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, now that brings us, there's two aspects I want you to see to seeking God's face. The first one we've already dealt with, but let's just repeat it because it's right here. Number one, there must be thirst. It's like, God, I can't go on without you. God, I've got to have you. If any man thirst, if any man thirst. In other words, it's kind of saying this, I'm not living for the here and now. I'm not living for the temporal. I want to live for the eternal. And I will tell you, every teenager in this room understands this, but I remember when my teenage years, hearing it preached, and it certainly is true, and every single one of you is going to have to come to a decision, am I going to live for the eternal or will I live for the temporal? Everyone in this room has either made that decision or you're going to have to make it. You're going to live for now or you're going to live for eternity. And I remember as a teenager, I, I had a grandmother, as I mentioned, who walked with God. I had parents who were not perfect but walked with God. And I remember as a teenager, I'm thinking, I don't know God. I believe I was saved, but I didn't know God. And I remember as a teenager thinking, if it die in the attempt, I want to know God like Grandma knew God. I made a decision to live for the eternal. I've not done it perfectly. I'm sure others in this room have done way better than I have. But it was a life-changing decision. I tell people about decisions. Decisions are not promises of perfection. They are declarations of direction. None of us will be perfect, but we can make a decision that changes the direction of our life. That's what decisions are all about. Directional changes. And I remember making that decision, and it absolutely transformed my college years. Because when I went to college, I did not primarily go for an education, though I got a good one. It, I began my pursuit of God. And I remember my freshman year, somebody handed me a little book, and the title burned in my heart. You know what the title was? The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Anybody ever read it? I remember reading that book. My heart burned, and I will tell you, I'm going to just be dead honest with you. I understood very little of what he was saying. It was above me. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't understand what this guy's saying, but whatever he's saying, I think it's right. God began to do that work in my heart, began to stir. Certainly, like I mentioned, certainly not at all in perfection, but God began to, it was a di 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 direction. God began to take other things that were important to me, and they began to dim in my pursuit of God. Uh, I'm sure I'm vibing with people in this room that reached a point in your life when you got sick and tired of living for the here and now. You said, I'm going to live for something better. I'm going to live for eternity. There may be a young man in this room, God begins to burn in your heart that he could use you. Some of you could lead thousands of people to Jesus Christ. God begins to burn in your heart that he's got something bigger for you, better for you, eternal for you. My friend, doesn't matter where we are. 
where you are in the business field or where you are in your workforce. God began to burn in your heart that this is my mission field. And the greatest thing on planet Earth, God made us because he wants to meet with us. What a privilege. But it all starts with, if any man thirst. God's saying, you thirst, I'll pour the water out. You want me, then with all your heart, all your mind, I'll meet your need. I will meet with you. There's not a person in this room who could not know God, who could not meet with God, who could not have a serious relationship with God. Here's our problem. We get distracted. You know what I love about the picture of thirst? Thirst is not a meritorious picture. Sometimes people get the idea, well, if I seek God for two or three years, God's got it. You know, God doesn't answer us because we do it for a certain amount of time. That's meritorious. No, the picture is thirst. Does thirst earn you anything? You ever going to McDonald's? Order that dollar Coke or whatever, you know? What is it in Florida? Buck five, you know, with the tax? I think it's a buck fifty up in New York, but anyway, and uh, buck seventy-five up there in California. But anyway, uh, you know, buck five here in Florida. Okay, that's why everybody moves here. But anyway, and uh, so uh, you, you order, you know, the coke, and the, and the, the little late, late girl there says, "Well, it'll be a dollar five. You say, "What do you mean a dollar five? Can't you see I'm thirsty? I am dying of thirst. I have earned that Coca-Cola." You know what? They're going to probably pitch you out of McDonald's. You know why? Because thirst doesn't earn you anything. Thirst simply means the more thirsty you are, the more you will sacrifice to get what you know you've got to get. Probably nobody in this room has ever been so seriously dehydrated that your life was in danger. But I guarantee you, if you would, the more dehydrated you were, the, the, the more important liquid would become. How many have read Unbroken? story about Louis Zamperini. As I many read about, okay, the Olympic runner who was, uh, holds the record for being adrift at sea in the Pacific Ocean for the longest and staying alive. Uh, he and his pilot went down and they had another crew member, but he died in the, in the hole, in the, in the, the raft there. And, and they uh, survived. It was just, and then were captured by the Japanese. Just an amazing story. But uh, the writer is so good to help you identify with their dehydration. They literally almost hallucinate. They'd see storms on the horizon, and they would try to row over there because their only hope was fresh water from the sky. And literally in those moments of dehydration, I guarantee you those men would have given anything and everything just to get water. You see, thirst is the idea. It's not meritorious. It's just I can't go on without it. It becomes important. God's the most important thing. I need you, God. But here's the problem. Nobody in this room, if we were physically dehydrated, would be able to push off thirst. It would consume you. But I don't know what it is in the spiritual realm. We can be spiritually dehydrated and not even think about it. And I believe it's because we are literally all around us are confronted with what I'm going to call thirst dullers. We can be spiritually famished and dehydrated and not even recognize it. Why? Our thirst has been dull. With all the technology, all the distraction, all the media... And we forget we need God. Have you ever gotten in the car and not turned on the radio? And gone for minutes in silence? Do you know what? Our culture doesn't like that. We're used to noise. And I believe in many ways, as a result of that, we drown out the dehydration. So God says, if any man thirst. I didn't matter if you're 15 
Doesn't matter if you're 55, 75, 85. I don't care if you're 95. Doesn't matter where you are in this world. If you are thirsty, God says, I'll meet your need. If any man thirst, if any man thirst. But notice there's a second part to the phrase. and It says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Wow. Now I got a question for you. How do you come to Jesus and drink? I mean, if he was still in Jerusalem, we'd get a plane flight. We could go over there. We could stand in line, get the drink. What do you think? Well, clearly it's not talking about something that's literal, literal water. In fact, he tells us what it is. It's literal, but it's not physical water is a better way to put it. What's he saying here? Let him come to me and drink. Well, the greatest commentary in the Bible always has been and always will be the Bible. So let's keep reading. Here it is. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Wow. So what does it mean to come and drink? And the answer is, it's two sides of faith. Believing. Now, what is coming? I believe coming is saying, Jesus... I'll do whatever you want me to do. You want me to come, I'll come. Whatever you want me to do. What does come mean? Well, obviously, God has a will for all of us. So uh, could we call it surrender? We talked a little bit about this last night. A total surrender. God, I want your will, whatever it is. It's a dependence on God to lead you. Number two, drink. It's a dependence on God to enable you or to provide for you. See, it's like this. Uh, My brother John has used this illustration, and it's such a helpful one. If you're in a rowboat, have you ever noticed this? If you're in a rowboat and you only row with one oar, guess what happens? If you row with the other side, you're not going to make progress either way. So if you have, okay, let's say over here. Okay, God, you show me what to do, I'll do it. And I'll try as hard as I can to do it. You've got one oar in the water. You've got surrender in the water, but you're depending on yourself. Or you can come over this side. God, got some really good plans. I got my life all figured out. All I need you to do is to enable me to do what I want to do. You got another oar in the water. You see him? You got the total surrender oar over here, but you got the total dependence over here, and you're missing the other oar, and you will only go in circles. The only way to go forward is, God, you show me what to do, I'll do it. But when I do it, I will trust you for the grace and the strength to do what I know I cannot do. Then you'll move forward. See, it's faith. It's the two sides of faith. It's resting in Jesus to guide you, and it's resting in Jesus to enable you or to provide what you need to live as whatever he calls you to do. Two sides of the same coin, and that's where we move forward. So if I could put it this way, the two sides of seeking God's face are thirst, and I'm going to use a synonym for believe, and rest. What if I came to you this before, at the very beginning of the message, and I said, hey, I want to preach to you on two synonyms tonight. Thirst and rest. Would you have thought those were synonymous? They don't really seem synonymous. Why? They almost seem a little bit of tension, don't they? And they are a tension. But at the center of the tension is where the truth is. There's a camp nearby our uh, hour away from my home called Camp Joy. I know there's one in Tennessee, but this camp is up in Wisconsin called Camp Joy. And they built a ropes course and way up in the air. And of course, you got all the safety gear on. And you could, you got a one place where you're supposed to walk on this guide wire, but they got a guide wire over here and you're supposed to hold on to. And so it's kind of like this. You're kind of, you're kind of walking and, and you got to hold on to both wires and you know how it is. And you're holding on to those wires. And it, it, if, but here, if you let go of this side, guess what happens? You fall off this side. And if you let go of this side, you fall off this side. You see, the very tension of those two sides keeps you on the rope. So when it comes to seeking God, there's two two sides to it. One is, God, I really want you. 
And the other one is, God, I'm expecting you to show up. Because you said you would. I call it that thirst and rest. See, if we're thirsty without rest, guess what happens? We fall into what I might call overactivity. <laughs> or we fall into uh, our, own, our own dependence. Where we try to earn God, meritorious thinking. But if we don't focus on thirst and rest, then we get into passivity. And the Bible obviously is not talking about passivity. Faith always produces obedience or works, James chapter 2. So the idea here is very clearly, God, I want you. I thirst for you. But God, I'm expecting you to lead me, and I'm expecting you. I want to ask you, are you expecting God to lead you? Because if you are, he will. Are you expecting God to enable you to do what he's called you to do? Because if you are, he will do it. Paul helped us out with this. I can do how many things? <laughs> Through which. So whose strength is it? It's Christ's strength. It's his provision. It's his water, if you will. And the Bible says when someone lives a thirst-rest life, out of their belly flows what? Rivers of living water. So he's clearly not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. In a moment, we're going to get to that. Because I don't know about you, if I saw somebody running on the street and looked like their gut was a fire hydrant, I think I'd call 911. What do you do? <laughs> so what does it mean? Out of his belly flow rivers of living water. Well, the Bible tells us, but this spake he of the Spirit. In other words, friends, somebody who lives the thirst rest life, do you know what happens? They become a channel of the presence of Jesus Christ. I have met Christians, and I, you have too, and I'm sure you have them in this room, who have major portions of their life where they are channels of the presence of Jesus Christ. And often they don't even realize it because they're humble folk and they know their own clay feet, but they have a dependence on Jesus, an expectancy, a hunger and thirst for him, an expectancy that leaves them in great rest and great joy. You see, the idea, friends, is become a channel of the presence of God. You know, when my parents, particularly my mom died first in 89, my dad died in 1997, and when I buried my dad, it was just a really difficult thing because he was 72, which is getting younger every year I live. But anyway, when I buried my dad, I, I remember thinking, why did this man so impact my and I don't know, think it was a lightning bolt. I think it was a growing understanding. I, I finally came to the understanding, you know, it wasn't Wayne Van Gelder that impacted me. It was Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you know the thought that really comforted me? I have lost my dad, but I have not lost Jesus. One of the things happens when you lose a channel of the Lord Jesus. We really grieve over it. But I want to encourage you with this. You may have lost the channel, but you didn't lose the Spirit. <laughs> He's still with us. And God simply is asking us, are you going to be a channel? Out of your belly going to flow rivers. Jesus, fill now with thy spirit. Hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner man may flow. Channels only. Blessed Master. Oh, I think the songwriter knew what it was talking about here. Emptied that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand, with no power but as thou givest, graciously, with each command, channels only. Oh, you see it, friends? Uh, that's what he's talking about. You say, okay, so preacher, how does this work? I, I want God. I want to have a relationship with God. I want to live the thirst, rest life. I want it, I want it to be. Okay, 
I, I think we've certainly walked through the passage enough to understand it, so I just want to wind it down with this. You folks did such a great job listening last night, and I will be honest with you. When I finished, I realized I preached a whole lot longer than I should have. But you hung with me and you came back, so I'll promise you to give you a shorter one tonight, okay? There you go. I'll make it up to you. But um, I want to conclude with an illustration that hopefully will help you understand uh, something that's helped me. Because you say, you know, preacher, sometimes I really just enjoy the presence of God, but other times it's, where's God? It's like I've lost God. How do you navigate that? Well, I believe there's a little illustration. I was, someone mentioned it probably years ago, and it's helped me. I think it'll help you too. It's not a Bible illustration, but it's certainly a modern-day illustration that illustrates Bible truth, so hopefully it'll be a help. My uncle, when uh, he was a 16-year-old kid, did something most 16-year-old kids don't do. He built an airplane. Not a model airplane, an airplane. He built an airplane, got a kit, built the airplane, and then, I don't know how, it must have been easy back then, he got himself a pilot's license. And he became the terror of the skies. You think it's bad that 16-year-olds are on the road, put them in the sky, and you got a problem. My uncle admitted, it was a farming community in central Illinois, that he would dive bomb farmers. Farmers would be out there on their tractors, and he'd just go in and up, the farmer would look up, terrified, jump off the tractor, like that. He wasn't real popular in town, you know what I'm talking about, and, he would fly under bridges, a bridge, you know, bridge over a river, and he'd like that. Then do it upside down, like that. My uncle told me, and I think he was telling the truth, it was a miracle I lived out of my teen years. I think he was telling the truth. My uncle was, could not carry a tune in a bucket. I mean, he could not. He could not sing a tune. He couldn't. And he became known all his life as a song leader. God has a sense of humor, a big one. My uncle, his name is Jim Stoutenborough, for years he led singing at the Bill Rice Ranch, for years. And the way it happened was he just a farm boy, and one day the late Dr. Bill Rice was going to be preaching, at, he was going to be preaching at a revival meeting in central Illinois, and my uncle was a song leader. And he got way late, and got there an hour late, and when he was done, he said, tell me who the song leader is. He says, that was the most fresh crowd I have ever seen that waited an hour for preaching. And he was introduced to my uncle, who at the time was just a 20-year-old kid, and pretty soon evangelists all over central Illinois started saying, I want you to come lead and sing for a revival. And, and he became known as the Flying Farmer. <laughs> he'd finish plowing the field about three or so in the afternoon. He'd get in his airplane. He'd fly over to that little town. And he'd get out. And somebody would pick him up. They'd run to the revival meeting. And sometimes get there just a few minutes before 7 o'clock. He said many times, he said the church was so packed out, they'd have to pull him in a back window to lead singing. Now, when my uncle led the singing, he levitated. I mean, he was off the stage. I mean, he's up, down, jump. If you, and if anybody ever saw Jim Stoutenborough lead singing at the Boys Ranch, okay? We do have somebody, okay? She can verify I am telling you the truth. But I don't know if anybody could get a thousand teenagers singing like my uncle. Just unbelievable. But um, he would fly, you know, and fly. And then the next morning, get up as soon as the break of dawn, he'd come back and he'd do his farm work. So he'd do revival meetings in the evening and... Farming during the daytime, and uh, his uh, my my grandparents uh, they left him orphans. They died uh, and left him orphans, so he had to run a farm as a, as a young man. Well, he uh, didn't have his uh, he didn't have his instrument rating, so uh, he had to make sure you know couldn't do a fly at dark, and he had to make sure there were no storms. 
Because if he were to get fogged in, he, he didn't know how to use the instruments. It would have been very dangerous. So he pretty re- soon realized, you know, I'm going to have to get my instrument rating. And, and I remember when I was a little boy, he got his instrument rating. So he could fly at night. He could fly through storms because, like I said, if you get fogged in and you don't know how to use it, you die. It's a really good motivation. Okay, so uh, uh, he got his instrument rating. But you know what? My uncle hated to fly by the instrument panel. It's boring. It's like flying in a simulator. Who wants to do that? He loved to fly by the seat of his pants. In other words, fly by the horizon. I mean, he would just he would just do all kinds of stuff. I mean, he was a kid at heart, died at, when he was 89 years old. I think he was still a kid at heart at 89. But um, he did stop flying uh, that by that time. That was good. Okay, really good. Okay, a little more wisdom than he did at 16. But here's the point. He loved flying by just the horizon. I kind of think of an analogy this way. You know how you have those moments where you're walking with God, you're enjoying his presence? Have you ever had fog come in? You say, Preacher, why does the fog come in sometimes in life? Now, don't miss this. When you have a heart for God and you're seeking God and you have an expectancy, God, I'm expecting you to show up, and God brings in fog, I'm going to tell you the secret. Fly by the instrument panel. Now, I believe God allows fog into our life for several reasons, but one of the reasons I'm convinced God allows fog into our life is because we begin to depend upon our experience instead of depending on the instrument. I find every time God brings in fog, you know what he's saying, Jim? You need to trust my word. Sometimes it's good to fly by the instrument panel. And you say, boy, I don't know where God is, but I'm just going to believe him. Here's the key. You thirst for God. Seek his face how much? How much? In other words, it's right for us to say, God, lift the fog. God, I want to enjoy the fellowship of the manifest presence of God. That's what I want. But, oh, God, I'm expecting you to show up. I'm trusting the word. This is the key. The instrument panel is the key. Otherwise, you crash and burn. Now, I believe one of the reasons is sometimes, like I said, we trust our experience. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants to trust the Word. It's very important to trust the Word. You know what I found? Experience always catches up with reality. It always does. The focus is not on experience. It's on reality. And the Bible tells you what is real. See? That's the instrument panel. One other thought that certainly I've seen in my own life, sometimes we're enjoying the presence of God, but we get a little careless, don't we? And we take him for granted. I want to ask you a question I'm going to ask you not to answer. Have you ever taken God for granted? I remember back when I was a little kid, sometimes I'd take my mother for granted. You know, I was four years old. The, the absolute icon of security was mama. You, know, you remember back then? If mama's there, everything's fine. But you know, sometimes I go to the grocery store. I remember one time going to the airport, and this is the Durango, Colorado airport. I mean, I am absolutely, I'm four years old, I'm blown away. There are absolutely enormous planes out there, like 12-seaters, 16-seaters. These things are enormous. And I'm sitting there up against the glass as a four-year-old kid. You know how it is right there, you know. And I'm up against the glass. I'm looking at those planes. I'm just totally distracted by those planes. And you know what? I took my mother's presence for granted. And all of a sudden, the thought hit my mind. You remember this as a kid? Maybe you don't remember stuff like this. Where's mama? 
All of a sudden, the pay, because you know, when you're a four-year-old kid and you're a brat, you're pretty sure your mom's trying to ditch you whenever she has a good opportunity, so you want to make sure you keep her within eyesight so she can't ditch you. You know what I'm talking about? You don't remember that, don't you? Okay. So I'm up looking at those planes, and all of a sudden it hit me. Uh-oh, better check on mama just to make sure she's close. And of course, when you're four years old, maybe you weren't like this, but my recognition level was at about three feet. You know what I'm talking about? So I pretty much recognized my mother by the skirt she was wearing and the shoes she were wearing, by her legs, you know. So I'm looking around that airport. I'm not seeing any pair of legs that look like mom's. Then all of a sudden, I saw a pair of legs, and I was sure they were my mother's, absolutely certain. And I'm telling you, it was chariots of fire. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's a full bore. I mean, I was just running every single ounce of energy. I'm running toward those pair of legs. I wrap my arms around those legs and look up, but it wasn't my mother. My dear mother saw the whole thing. And I don't know why, for the next four hours, she could not stop laughing. For some reason, I didn't think it was funny at all. But I remember my mother coming over and rescuing me, apologizing to the lady. And, of course, I had a red face, something I've had a pretty good tendency of doing from time to time. But when you're blonde hair, you get used to having a red face. You can't hide your embarrassment like some of you others can. But... uh, You know my point? I took her for granted. You know, sometimes I believe God brings in the fog. You know, we look at something we shouldn't have looked at, compromise here, waste a little bit of time over here, and the fog rolls in. You know what God's saying? You took me for granted. (laughs) You need to get back to the instrument panel. You need to have a hunger for me and thirst for me and seek my face continually and expect me to show up. And you know what? In God's good time, the fog's gone. (laughs) All I'm simply saying, friend, do you live the thirst rest life? Do you seek his face continually? And seeking his face continually again, it's not hard. It's thirsting and trusting. God, I can't live without you. I'm expecting you to show up. I'm expecting you to lead me. I'm expecting you to enable me to do what you want me to do. God, I can't go on without you, though. God, I've got to have you. Now, the person in this room, and if you don't live the thirst rest life, who not, will not live in the reality of God's presence on a regular basis. And I will tell you, in my opinion, the pinnacle of the human existence is for God to fellowship with man. There is nothing more fulfilling or gratifying in all the world than knowing God. And obviously we all want to know him more. The manifestation of the presence of God. Seek my face continually. Could I ask every head bowed, please?